we have Dr. Anna Lemke, author of Drug Dealer MD, joining us again on our episode to really talk about how we can help our patients get through this difficult space as they come off of opioid and other addictions. This is Pain Refrain. Well, welcome back to the show, Dr. Lemke. The amount of listeners that wanted to know more about really addiction and the and the tapering off of opioids. Uh, we heard a lot from our listeners about that, so we'd really like to spend the time today discussing with you uh, strategies that you are using in your practice and are supported in the literature in beginning to work with folks uh, that are addicted to opioids. Well, I'm, I'm delighted to be here and I'm overjoyed to hear that people are interested in working to get patients off of chronic opioid therapy when the risks outweigh the benefits. Um, so I'm happy to tell you kind of the approach that I take in my practice. About 50% of my practice now is a, what I call a de-prescribing practice uh, just by default because there are so many people out there who want help getting off of not just opioids but also um, benzodiazepines, medications like Xanax and Valium and Clon. And there are so many doctors who don't have training in this and don't feel comfortable guiding their patients through it or just think it should be easy. And so why not just stop? What's the big deal? So I end up doing a lot of education in this space and also taking care of a lot of these patients. So I hope that my experience uh, can help others uh, do this work. Why don't we start then with the patient that comes in to see you um, that has made a choice to come off some of these drugs and yet has a perhaps a three to four year history of of really increasing dosages and really some life-altering changes. How, how does that encounter start? So what I have developed is an acronym that I think is useful in guiding this process. And an acronym just means, you know, a set of letters to stand for other words. And the acronym is BRAVO. And B stands for broaching the subject. R stands for risk benefit calculator. A stands for addiction happens. V stands for validation and velocity, and O stands for other treatments for pain. And the reason that I think BRAVO is a nice acronym because I think that um, both patients and providers uh, should give themselves a big pat on the back for um, you know doing this work. It's a hard road, um, especially for patients who have been on opioids long term. And I think everybody kind of deserves uh, a little round of applause for um, you know being willing to work on this. So let me just go through each of those one by one, and please feel free to interrupt with questions if you have them. But let me start with B, broaching the subject. I think first and foremost, it's important for healthcare providers to recognize that even just talking about tapering opioids can be absolutely terrifying for patients. So it's very important to take additional time in order to broach the subject and to broach the subject in a way that really respects and validates how afraid um, patients are, even just thinking about getting off of opioids, you know, regardless of actually beginning the process. I, I think if we don't take the time, then what happens is our, our you know, our patients get so terrified that they get dysregulated, and then they can't hear anything else that we have to say. So one of the, the tricks that I kind of use is, first of all, I literally create more time in my schedule when I know I'm going to be broaching the subject of getting off of opioids. 
And I, to- I verbally validate for the patients that this is re- probably a very scary thought for them and that, that one of the things that they're really afraid of is physiologic withdrawal because they've all at some point experienced it when they ran low on their dose or they forgot their dose and they started to go into withdrawal. And for many people, withdrawal is so awful, they'd rather die than have to continue to endure that pain. So it's important to acknowledge that. The other thing that I that I recommend is to create what what the psychoanalyst Winnicott calls a safe holding environment. Basically, to communicate to the patient that you're not doing this in retaliation or impulsively. You're doing this because you've given it a lot of hard thought, even outside of the clinic time with the patient. So I usually do that by saying something like, you know, I've been thinking a lot about your chronic pain. Or I might say, you know, I've been discussing your case with colleagues who are experts in the field of opioids and chronic pain, and I've been thinking a lot about about how to help you. And the reason that's important is it communicates to the patient that they exist beyond the time in which you see them in your office, that, that, that you care about them as people, that their whole health experience is something that you value. So, so I think make, communicating those types of things, broaching the subject involves actually literally scheduling more time with the patient. It means validating their fears and, and, and letting them know that you understand they're afraid, but you're going to you know, work together with them on the journey. And then last, communicating that it's not an impulsive or retaliatory decision. It's a decision that comes out of a thoughtful process of you um, wanting what's best for them. So any questions about that piece before I move on to the next piece of it? Anna, that is so awesome. And that, that validation is something that is so cool. You're putting that very pointingly into that, into that phrase that this is coming from a place of care, a place of concern, you know, not a place of, Hey, there was legislation that said, I have to stop this. We're stopping this. It's a very human approach. You know, for one thing as PTs, we're very blessed with, and I think puts us in a very good position to have some of these conversations. Now we're not trying to prescribe or deprescribe. That's not our license. Um, But we do have adequate time for conversation for our MD colleagues in your experience, Anna, how long, when you do know that you're going to be having this conversation, how long, of a visit might you try to carve out of your schedule that you find seems to be sufficient to sort of engage completely in this dialogue? I think when you're first broaching the subject, in some ideal world, you'd have 30 to 45 minutes to talk about this. You know, the average primary care doctor gets somewhere between 15 and 20 minutes, and I just don't think that's enough, especially if you have to cover diabetes and hypertension and other issues that are part of that visit. Or if you only have 20 to 30 minutes in your, you know, in the way that you're schedule is structured, then make an additional or extra appointment to just focus on that in the 20 minutes that you have. Yeah, that that was excellent, uh, Dr. Lemke. The other thing I really resonated with me was that as you were speaking to really therapeutic alliance and the ability to, that the trust that's between you and the, the patient at that moment in time, it needs to be there to broach. And I guess I also would say that's really a call out to listeners that have more time with patients and have developed that trust that they need to begin working on those skills that you said to broach the subject. That non-judgmental, thoughtful, caring, uh, opening statement. That was was excellent. Right, right. Yeah. And we we always, uh, you know, we don't spend as much time on that as we need to, but particularly in this 
a particular population of complex chronic pain, uh, they really need that additional time. So let me now move on to the risk-benefit calculator. That's the R in Bravo. And the risk-benefit calculator is just exactly what it sounds like, where you want to weigh the risks of chronic opioid therapy with the benefits. So this is where we really try to individualize care. We don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, there might indeed be some people out there who do fine on um, chronic opioid therapy as long as it's at a reasonable and low dose. Um, but you really don't know uh, if they're doing fine unless you you know take the time to go through the risk-benefit calculator because what we want to balance is side effects with pain relief with function. And although it's true, there are no data supporting the use of opioids more than three months for chronic pain. Uh, even though that's true, you know, we don't want to also just be slave to the data. Being a slave to the data is what got us into trouble with opioids in the first place, where the big pharma co-opted small studies to convince us that uh, opioids weren't addictive as long as they were being prescribed by a doctor. So we want to be able to individualize care and to use our experiential knowledge to let that inform um, our approach to each given patient. First of all, it's important um, in this process to know what, in fact, the side effects are um, with chronic opioid therapy. And I'll just name a few. Tolerance is a side effect. What does that mean? That means needing more and more to get the same effect. Now, a lot of people don't think of tolerance as a side effect, but I think it's important to put it on the side effect list because if you have a patient who does develop tolerance, then probably that's somebody who you want to consider getting off of opioids. Why? Because no dose will ever be enough to target their, their, their pain. So in other words, you have someone who says the Vicodin worked great, but now it's not working anymore. You want to explain tolerance to them and say, you know, the fact that it's not working anymore tells me that you're probably not a good candidate for chronic opioids because no matter how high we go eventually, you know, it will stop working and then you'll have a new problem. You'll be dependent uh, and tolerant to opioids and you'll have to deal with withdrawal. Other side effects to chronic opioid therapy including, include dependence, uh, meaning that you have this physiologic adaptation such that you experience withdrawal symptoms uh, when the opioid is no longer there. Um, other side effects include hyperalgesia. That means you have increased pain, uh, paradoxically, to chronic opioids. And other side effects include depression, cognitive problems, constipation, hormonal imbalance, addiction, and then, of course, death because opioid can suppress respiration and heart rate so that you fall asleep and don't wake up again. So I think it's important to go through each of these and try to figure out with each patient, um, you know, whether or not those side effects are present in their lives. Um, now, here's another important pearl. You don't just want to take the patient's word for whether or not they have side effects. You also want to ask family members. Why is that? Because opioids are unique in that not only do they treat pain, but they also can um, influence the dopamine reward pathway, which means that people can lose the ability to have insight on whether or not the opioids are really helping them. Um, when, they, when they have a kind of hijacked reward pathway, they can be under the mistaken impression that they're more functional and doing better than they actually are. 
So that's why it's important to bring in family and ask family, you know, do you think this person is functional and doing well? Because the patient may say, I'm doing great. I'm really functional. My pain is relieved. I don't want to get off of opioids. And then you bring a family member in and they say, you know what? This person is not getting out of bed. They're not engaging in family life. They're spending all day binging on Netflix. They're not going to work. So in doing this risk-benefit calculator, really important to get that collateral information. Other objective data points include checking uh, physicians' prescription drug monitoring database and making sure they're not getting other uh, medications they're not telling you about and doing a urine drug screen to make sure they're not using other substances they're not telling you about. So that's the risk-benefit calculator. Any questions about that? Wow, that was very insightful and very detailed. So I'm, I'm good. I'm, how about you, Jeff? Anna, I'm really curious. How do you go about um, engaging the family members? Do you ask permission from the patient? Do you reach out independently? Um, what's that dynamic? Well, because of privacy laws, you have to get permission um, unless it's a life-threatening situation. So you absolutely need permission but, you know, I think if you're persistent enough, most most patients will give permission. And then, yeah, you can either do it as an independent phone call or meeting, or you can bring that family member into the office, uh, whatever you think, you know, whatever works best, actually. That's wonderful, because we oftentimes wind up, um, Tim, I'm sure you experience that as well, with, with, with family members coming together, especially when someone's really having a hard time. You know, the spouse will be there, um, or, or a parent will be there, and I could really see that as a great way to kind of collaborate stories and open that book up to everybody and and try to get a clearer picture. Yeah. Yeah. No, family is great. And there was an interesting Kaiser Family Foundation study that found that people, I mean, if the patients on chronic daily opioids for pain, 30% of them were concerned that they were being addicted, that they had gotten addicted. But when you asked family members, it was 50% were concerned that they had gotten addicted. So what that tells you is that there's that gap between that 30%, that 20% of folks who probably are becoming addicted and are not aware. Um, so anyway, that to me is was sort of the take home message from that piece of uh, evidence. So, so let's look at the, the next one in our Bravo. This is A for addiction happens. So addiction happens is one of the things that I do in this initial discussion with patients about the taper is that I really normalize getting addicted. I say, you know, when we first started prescribing opioids for chronic pain two, three decades ago, we believed that the risk of addiction was less than 1%. But now we know that it's probably more, more likely between about 20 and 30%. So it's possible that in the process of trying to taper off, we discover that you have actually become addicted. And if that's true, you don't feel bad about it because there are lots of people in your shoes. Plus, there's good treatment for opioid addiction. So if that turns out to be the case, we'll just you know, have to revise our treatment plan to target that problem. I think by normalizing uh, getting addicted to prescription opioids, uh, we de-shame it for people. And by telling them that there's good treatment for opioid addiction, we give them hope, uh, should it happen, that they are unable to do the taper. Now, having said that, not everybody who struggles to uh, taper off of opioids is necessarily addictive. Some people are just really, really physiologically dependent, and they have to go more slowly. And I'll talk about that in, in, the, ne- in the next one. But th- that's sort of the kind of immediate take home of, you know, addiction happens. And I think here too, you can spend a little time of clarifying for patients the difference between dependence and addiction because those are different things. 
Yeah, it's, it's wonderful, Anna, that so many of these conversations kind of run together. And that's actually a great thing. You know, when we talk to somebody about having persistent pain, one of the things we focus on is letting them know, hey, one in, one in four people or so have a hard time getting their nervous system to calm back down after a pain event. And they develop these persistent symptoms. And there are these changes in the nervous system. It's common. It's not normal, but it's very common. And I think just telling patients that they're like, oh, the, number one, this guy doesn't think I'm a weirdo. He, he doesn't think I'm fake. And he doesn't think I'm malingering. He legitimately not only believes me, but sees this regularly. And now there's this normalcy space where a really good conversation can happen. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The, yeah, this whole new wave toward talking about centralized pain, you know, although there are no data to support this, my clinical experience would suggest that these centralized pain folks are very similar to uh, addicted folks that, that on some level are kind of, it's a similar brain pathology. So uh, let's talk about the V of Bravo. This is velocity and validate. One of the biggest mistakes that docs make in t- tapering patients off of chronic opioid therapy is to go too quickly. If you look in the literature, t- what you will find is a recipe that says decrease the opioid by 10 to 20% of the starting dose every week until the patient is off. And I can tell you that there, I, I, my sense is that the majority of patients on chronic opioids, if you really went that fast, they would never make it. If you think about this from a neuroscience perspective and the neuroadaptation that happens in the brain as a result of chronic opioids, it makes total sense that patients would not be able to get off that quickly, right? If they've been on opioids for decades and there's been all those changes in the brain to accommodate opioid exposure, then it makes sense that it would take not days and weeks, but probably you know, months and even years to get people off of opioids. So I really urge doctors to go slowly. The other important thing is some, a, doc, a lot of docs ask me, well, which, you know, I have this patient on a long acting opioid, a short acting opioid, you know, which one should I go first? I say, do whatever the patient wants to do. If they'd rather, you know, get off their fentanyl patch before they get off of their, you know, oxycodone or oxycontin, then do the fentanyl patch. What, you know, you want to enlist their cooperation and collaboration in the process. And there's really no science to say it should be one or the other. So go with whatever the patient tells you they're willing to work with first. The other important piece is use the same dosing schedule. So brains are amazingly like little alarm clocks. Um, So if someone has a twice a day or a three times a day or a four times a day dosing schedule, you don't want to take a four times a day and reduce it to a two times a day as part of the taper strategy. For as long as possible, you want to decrease the dose at the same dosing schedule. So if you have somebody who's on, you know, oxycodone 30 milligrams three times a day, you don't want to go down to oxycodone 40 milligrams twice a day. You want to decrease that 30 milligrams to 20 milligrams at one of those intervals. So let's say someone was taking 30, 30, 30, you might go down to 30, 30, 20. And then the next time you go down, you might go to 30, 20, 20. And then you'd go 20, 20, 20. The point being that it's much better to keep the schedule and decrease the dose at each of those scheduled times than to try to change the dosing schedule. Wow, that's a powerful statement right there. And because so many of our patients come in and they've tried to drop a dosage, they get very flared up, they're horrible, and now it's two hours in and they go back to it. And just that nugget right there of knowledge to our patients to say, you know, this is indeed what is happening 
from you know a, a brain training perspective. So that's not your 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 best strategy because that that clearly I've heard that happen multiple times in my clinic. Yeah, and that's really a recipe for failure. Like people will either go you know decrease the dose too much or change the dosing schedule, and then they can't tolerate it, and then they go back up again. And that's the next piece that you really want to explain to patients. It's really important never to go backwards. So you can go very very slowly, but you never want to go up again. And and what I say to patients is the reason you don't want to go up again is because all that pain and suffering that you endured when you first went down, um, you know, you lost it if you go back up again, because the brain will just sort of reset it wherever you were. Now, one thing is you can take breaks, right? So if you have somebody and they're going down by like 10 milligrams every two months, and then they say, you know, my son's wedding is coming up. I really don't want to be in withdrawal for that wedding. So you know what? We'll take a break. We'll keep it at this dose for the next two months, even though we were going to go down today. We'll, we'll keep it in there for another two months and let you just enjoy this family reunion and your son's wedding. And then when that's over, we'll, we'll start the safer again. So I think that's an important thing to um, never go backwards, but you can take breaks. I think that's just such huge advice because we have so many people who get so disappointed in themselves for not being being able to quit cold turkey. I mean, they're in that that anger really does not facilitate a healing place at all. And, it, and they're trying hard. That that's the the heartbreaking thing is, you know, I come from a, a rural area in Upper Michigan, and folks are very much do-it-yourselfers. And you know, when they quit right. smoking, they quit they quit cold turkey. And this should be yeah. the same thing. And I, I think what you're saying here, I hope so many of them are hearing it that this needs to be a process. The way this has to unwind simply does not respond well to that all-or-nothing approach. Thanks so much for sharing that. Yeah, no, I'm glad that 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 resonates with your clinical experience as well. That's validating for me uh, working way over here on on the West Coast. Sometimes patients uh, do better if you convert them to a longer-acting opioid. I don't want to talk too much about buprenorphine because it's a whole quagmire unto itself, but some patients will benefit by switching to a longer-acting opioid like buprenorphine to get off if they're finding they, they just can't you know, uh, tolerate the withdrawal on the opioid that they're already on. Now I want to switch to another important piece of this velocity and validate part of part of the equation. And that is preparing patients mentally for what to expect every time they go down on their dose. You have to inform them of the classic opioid withdrawal syndrome, which is basically, um, you know, a syndrome of um, sort of liquids coming out of every orifice, feeling like you're going to vomit, vomiting, having diarrhea, having a runny nose, having tears come out of your eyes. It's also characterized by anxiety, insomnia, irritability, depressed mood. Um, But most importantly for our complex chronic pain patients, when they go down on their opioid, they will experience increased pain all over their body. And it's really important to communicate to them that the pain of withdrawal is not the pain that they'll have to live with on a lower dose of opioids or off of opioids. It is the pain of opioid withdrawal. Even people without chronic pain have full body pain when they withdraw from opioids. So you have to constantly reassure them that the pain that they experience during opioid withdrawal is not their underlying pain syndrome getting worse. Also, 
you tell people that usually they'll have increased pain and all the other symptoms for about one to two weeks, and then it'll actually get better and their body will quiet down again. And then they'll end up sort of back at their baseline pain. So, so I think that's really important. And what I find too is every time the patient goes down again, you have to remind them of this. It's like people really are amnestic for this and they'll like be panicky and anxious because their pain will get so much worse. You have to say, this is opioid withdrawal mediated pain. Anna, that's, that's perfect because like Tim said, that, that tends to be exactly what happens is that I, I think now that you're saying that it's not dissimilar to us having to educate patients of, hey, loading this tendinopathy, we are expecting a bit worse pain tomorrow morning. And actually when they have the increased pain, it actually in many ways validates their treatment and increases their expectation because they were like, hey, this is what Jeff said. You know, this is normal. This is the response I should have if I'm going to move forward. Um, I can certainly say that in the patients who I have um, come alongside as they are trying to reduce their opioid use with their physician. In some cases, I don't think they have been educated well enough on that. And when things do get worse, that is an undeniable sign to them that this is a bad idea and that they should go back to opioids. Right, right. So I think really just kind of preparing them for what to expect then sets them up for a better experience because then when it happens, they kind of think back to what you said and they think, okay, I don't need to be frightened of this. This is what was supposed to happen. And that's that's very helpful because we know once people get gets anxious, that just amplifies their pain too. There are a lot of medications that are not addictive that patients can use to help them uh, through opioid withdrawal, things like gabapentin, clonidine, and antidiarrheal agents, ibuprofen, acetaminophen, some non-addictive anxiolytics like hydroxazine, things to help with sleep like trazodone or mirtazapine, things to help with nausea like ondansetron. I think it's really important though that patients don't get onto benzodiazepines like Xanax, Valium, Clonopin, etc. when they're trying to get off of opioids. One phenomenon that I've seen that is really not good is doctors putting patients on benzodiazepines to get them off of opioids, which certainly is helpful getting off of opioids, but then they're stuck on benzodiazepines and they have to go through that same process to get off of the benzodiazepines. So I really urge people to avoid benzos through this process. Anna, is there anything that physical activity contributes to reducing as far as from a natural, obviously having supplemental, supplemental medications is going to be huge and things these people can lean on while they're trying to accomplish that main goal of getting off the opioids. Um, what about physical activity? Is exercise, if they're able to do it when they're kind of having some of that total body discomfort, have you found in your practice that just moving and getting active um, has any positive abilities to help them move forward as far as getting off the meds? Great question and a perfect segue to the O of Bravo, which is other other treatments for pain, which is the last part. As you're doing this whole process, you want to continue to encourage all of those non-opioid alternatives that help people manage chronic pain. And exercise is a great one. We know, and there are many wonderful studies out there showing that, uh, you know, exercise, moderated exercise can really help chronic pain. And it's absolutely vital during this opioid withdrawal process. So yes, it's, it's really, people can't just stop doing all their other things. They have to continue doing their physical therapy, their acupuncture, their cognitive behavioral therapy, their exercise, their meditation, their Tai Chi, their, you know, Feldenkrais, whatever they do, they need to continue to do that. And it will really uh, help them in this process. There are two little things that I talk about in an office-based visit that I think are helpful um, in this process in terms of other treatments for pain. or And one of them is 
uh, a concept taken from dialectical behavioral therapy called opposite action. So opposite action means acting opposite to the emotional urge in the service of pursuing values or goals. So, you know, for the last three decades, what we've really encouraged chronic pain patients to do is to really dial into their pain and measure it on a scale from one to 10, and then essentially get anxious about, about it. I mean, what we now have to ask patients to do is, you know what, even though you have pain present, I want you to really take a moment and despite there being pain there, do the opposite, distract yourself, engage in activities, uh, you know, and within reason, even pursue a little bit of good pain um, just under that threshold of intolerability because we know that will reset your pain pleasure pathway in a way that will be helpful. So that's one thing. And then the other thing I really I talk to patients too is kind of this notion of radical acceptance that accepting reality as it is and not, not as we wish it would be, which also for chronic pain patients often means, you know, being honest about the fact that their pain may likely never go away entirely, but their life can still be worth living even if it includes pain. And then body awareness is really important, teaching body scan, exercise, hurt is not harm, diving into the pain. Again, we have this kind of thing where people are constantly trying to eliminate their pain. Sometimes if they dive into the pain, it can actually change shape uh, and, and the experience of the pain uh, can be really different for them. And then finally, I really encourage patients as they're doing activity and exercise to unplug themselves. I remember I had a patient who I thought would have a better response to exercise than she did, but then I found out that she was watching Netflix on a reclining bike at the same time. And I thought, uh, maybe that's the problem. You know what uh, I mean? It's like, she was kind of, defi- I said, you know what I want you to do? I want, if you're going to do the reclining bike, don't watch anything. Focus on your body. Feel how your body's moving. Connect your brain and your body. We're so disconnected from our bodies. Chronic pain patients are especially disconnected or at least connected only in one you know, in one way, which is connected on focusing on their pain and how, how debilitating it is. And I know it is debilitating, but there are other ways to be connected to your body. So that's it. You've heard it. Bravo. Broaching the subject, risk benefits and alternatives, addiction happens, velocity and validate and other treatments for pain. Wow. That's excellent. Dr. Lemke, really appreciate the, the, the acronym to be able to put it into practice. Um, on the other, I'm curious, um, if you are familiar with some of the work of James Fadiman and uh, Martin Polanco, and we're going to go off a bit here where they're really talking about, you know, this highly addictive properties of opioids and then change within the brain. And basically, they've gone and are looking more at some of these, what you would say in the old days were psychedelics, the LSDs, the psilocybin from the days, really looking at some of these treatments that actually have been shown, or well, at least some research, early research showing that it changes the withdrawal, rapidly changes the withdrawal nature of opioids. And if you're familiar with any of that work and your opinion on it. I'm not familiar with that work, but I have to admit as an addiction medicine specialist, I'm always wary of the quick fix. Um, So when I read about psilocybin or psychedelics as kind of a cure-all for depression or a cure-all for, you know, chronic pain, I just think to myself, that's highly unlikely to be true. 
you know, chronic pain is something that evolves and entrenches itself in the brain over a long time. I, I cannot believe that there's something that you could take once and reverse it. Now, I am more convinced by the use of psychedelics at the very end of life to help people overcome the terror that they may be experiencing as they face death, but that's really more of a palliative care intervention. I am, I admit, highly skeptical about these sorts of uh, quick fix interventions for chronic conditions, whether it's depression or chronic pain. Yes, and in fairness, the the at least the more respected voices are suggesting that it is just a window uh, into breaking a cycle. It's not a, a transformative uh, solution to really at the heart of what brought you to that state. But it is a it's intriguing, and I I often say that you know many of the things we've done really bad things with ingesting things into our body. But, you know, perhaps there might be a, a window of what I was most curious was people that uh, seemed to experience those that responded this really looking back at their um, life and kind of pulling out those traumatic events and seeing them a little bit differently. So I, because I often wonder personally, really folks with persistent pain, we, we use the label pain, which is so minimizing of all the adjectives, but what is it in both physical and emotional and social life that has created that, 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 that space that they're now in. And as you, we've all kind of said, unless we really step back and really, as you said, feel our body again, feel what it is to be in society again, um, and having a new window or lens to look, I don't know if we fully get to, to healing. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I couldn't agree with you more. I think many times, um, you know, when our chronic pain patients show up in our office seeking relief, what they're really seeking is um, social and psycho-spiritual goods, but they're not aware of it. You know, it's it's sort of been transmuted into a kind of a chronic pain scenario, which is very real. I mean, they feel pain in their bodies, but I think at the end of the day, you know, what, what's really missing um, or what would really be healing probably isn't something that's targeted to a joint or a muscle or, or a tendon. You know, it's something much deeper than that. So, yeah, I agree with you. It is interesting as we, you know, move through or forward, and I guess, in this healthcare, you know, you almost feel like, well, we really are getting back to the roots of what it meant to be in healthcare or medicine at its very basics was that of walking with someone. And, uh, you know, that's really should be at our roots of what our oath was. And, you know, hopefully, you know, we're making our way back that way. I sure hope so. I sure hope so. That that would be really nice to bring that back into medicine, uh, to appreciate the limits of technology and, and pharma and devices, and to really recognize that so much healing occurs because of the relationship between uh, the healer and the person who's seeking to be healed. Dr. Lemke, I can't thank you enough. I, I really hope that when we got on this show that you were going to be able to maybe lay out a little bit of a more systematic approach to helping someone navigate these challenging waters. Um, and to say that you accomplished that, I think would be understating the case. And, and, as you go through it, I think there's so many key things there that we could do better on than maybe we're doing. You know, whether that is 
having adequate time for that initial visit to really allow your therapeutic alliance to shine through, or whether that is educating the patient that there is going to be increased pain and that that shouldn't be a panic symbol. And that idea of never going backwards, even if you have to pause, you know, the velocity that you do it, the, the use of the other methods while you're healing, using other methods to help to treat that chronic pain besides the opioids. I mean, Dr. Lemke, those are, those are key pillars that I think MDs, P- PTs, everyone involved in the conversation can use and maybe even more importantly the increasing amount of patients who are listening to our show can start to understand that this is a challenging process but it is a process that has a system and if followed there there is a darn good chance this can go well but the key really is to lock down get your expectations in line and go through the process yeah and i love i love that uh, optimistic you know way to sum it up that that's really nice because that's really what patients need they need to feel confidence that they can do it Uh, One of the metaphors I use is kind of look at it like you're going through cancer chemotherapy. It's going to be really hard, but when, you know, you get out the other side of the tunnel, you'll you'll be in a better place. Well, with that, uh, I think we will close, Dr. Lemke. Just thank you again for another awesome episode. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for the good work that you do. Well, what an unbelievable conversation with Dr. Lemke. You know, Tim and I hope that we could get her back on and maybe help to give us a little bit of guidance when those difficult conversations come up on folks who are trying to reduce their their opioid dependency. And to say that was accomplished would be an understatement. I mean, Anna, with the Bravo acronym, just laying out really a step-by-step approach on how this is best done using a combination of her incredible clinical experience as well as current best evidence. I think that for all of our MD colleagues, um, all, all of our primary care colleagues who are seeing individuals that are struggling with this, that really was an unbelievable contribution in an area where sometimes organized information is hard to come by. And I think too, for all of you patients who listen, I hope you understood sort of the, the, the depth and the challenge of, of this, but also the fact that there's a plan to go forward. And so so please, when, when, when your motivation is in line, let those healthcare providers, your physicians, your colleagues, your friends come alongside and bump you forward. Um, you can get out of this and there is a plan in place. So thank you so much for everyone listening. Um, I love the fact that we're getting patients and medical providers and PTs all engaging in the conversation. Please continue to do, to do so. We are at ispinstitute.com, evidenceinmotion.com. Thanks for anybody willing to leave us a, a review on iTunes. Always great to see the support there as well. Have a most awesome time in clinic and in life and we will talk to you soon. Pain Reframed is brought to you by our sponsor, the International Spine and Pain Institute. Check out their transformative pain science programming at ispinstitute.com.